Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta as a scholar-in-residence, and I'll be your instructor for this lesson. This is Lesson 7 in this summer-long series on the Gospel of Mark, and it corresponds to the Sunday School class taught on July 15th. In this session, we'll turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 11, through Mark 9, verse 32. In this series of almost two chapters, uh, we see content organized around five key topics. First, in Mark 8, 11 through 21, we see the disciples misunderstanding a saying Jesus has about the yeast of the Pharisees and of, the, and of Herod. And then in Mark 8, 22 to 26, we find a story about a blind man who's partly healed, or at least is healed in a two-step fashion. Then in Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1, we have that very well-known encounter where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter identifies, or perhaps misidentifies, Jesus as the Messiah. And then immediately after that, we have the text in which Jesus appears transfigured on a mount before his three closest followers, John, James, and Peter. And then finally, in Mark 9, 9-32, we have a story about a father begging Jesus to heal his son. In this lesson, we won't deal with this last part of the pericope, but it is worth noting that this theme of a parent intervening on behalf of their child to Jesus for healing is a very common theme in the Gospel of Mark. As we've seen on numerous occasions, Mark's Jesus is really heavily invested in, in healing people uh, from various ailment, uh, uh, ailments and illnesses and diseases and demon possession, but so often it's the case that a parent is intervening on behalf of their child for Jesus' healing presence uh, in their children's lives, a topic that many of us parents can certainly relate to. In this lesson, then, we're going to look at the first four parts of the five-part outline that I've given you there in the overview, which can be found in the Prezi slides, which are available along with this audio presentation. Really, the two texts that we're going to focus on are the two that are most well-known, Peter identifying Jesus as the Messiah in 8.27 to 9.1, and then Jesus being transfigured on the mount in chapter 9, 2-8. But in order to understand what these two stories are about and why I think they are so intricately related, we actually need to move backwards to look at those two stories that precede them. For I, am, I believe that what happens in the two immediately preceding stories is crucial for us understanding the nature of the message that Mark is trying to transmit to us in the story of Peter and identifying Jesus as the Messiah, and then the follow-up story about Jesus being transfigured. So let's go ahead then and move to Mark 8, 11 through 21. This section opens with a notice that the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, asking him for a sign from heaven in order to test him. Now, what's going on here? Well, the Pharisees, it seems, have heard about the miracles that Jesus has been doing throughout the Galilee region. And perhaps they have even witnessed them uh, face-to-face, some of these uh, miracles. But nevertheless, they demand a sign from heaven. That is, they want some visible, visible, tangible proof that Jesus' authority actually comes from God. That's what it means, a sign from heaven. They know that this man has powers, but now they want to verify that those powers come from the right place. This might call to mind an earlier encounter where the, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees claim that Jesus was healing in the name of, 
uh, Beelzebub, uh, that is not in the name of God. So here they're trying to verify that not only that Jesus has power, but that that power comes from the right place. Now, this is a really interesting request and perhaps an ironic request because this text here, Mark 8, 11 through 22, comes immediately on the heels of Jesus having fed 4,000 people miraculously on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, previous to that, he had once again calmed the wind and the waves as a storm kicked up on the Galilee. And immediately before that, he had fed 5,000 people, but that time on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has been doing plenty of things in his ministry to visibly demonstrate his authority and to demonstrate it is from God. But nevertheless, the Pharisees are demanding visible evidence. Now, Jesus' response, I think, is quite interesting and perhaps even a little bit humorous. Uh, The text says that uh, in response to this, uh, that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, he went across to the other side. I love that phrase, Jesus sighed deeply. The Greek actually has more of a sense of the fact that he groaned. Uh, That is, he's just exasperated. He just can't believe that after all he had done, after all of the visible signs from heaven that he had given about his authority and about his divine power, that the Pharisees are still demanding a sign. And he seems to be just fed up with it at this moment. We really, I I think, I want to suggest that we really bring into focus here the human side of Jesus, that he really is annoyed, if you will, or at least uh, discouraged by the unbelief of the Pharisees. It wasn't so much that it was inappropriate to ask for a visible sign of his authority. What, what the problem, I think, in Jesus' mind is that he had already given those visible signs from heaven in abundance in and, in and through the various uh, miracles that he had performed. And I think what this highlights is the fact that the Pharisees, because we must remember the Pharisees had actually witnessed a number of those miracles that Jesus performed. I think what this suggests, and, and this really begins to point forward to the major theme of this whole section that we are covering in this Sunday school lesson, but it points to the fact that the why the Pharisees had eyes to had eyes and, and actually could see Jesus performing miracles. They did not have eyes to see. That is, they had sight, but not insight. They could see what was happening, but they could not perceive what it all meant. So it's not so much that the Pharisees had never seen Jesus perform a miracle; they just didn't know what to make of it. And just hold on to that point, because it's something that we're going to come back to at several points throughout the rest of this lesson. In either case, after this, Jesus leaves them, and he gets into the boat again, and he goes back across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're tracking his movements closely in the Gospel of Mark, this means that he's going back west to the Jewish or western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And then immediately we get a notice about the disciples. And here again, I think, I would like to think that Mark, the gospel writer, uh, writes this with, with a little bit of humor in mind. He says in verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread with them, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So what does this mean? Again, we need to read this in context to remember that all of this happens not long after Jesus had fed the multitudes on the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I think that's really important for understanding this line about them forgetting to bring any bread. Some commentators have suggested 
that this means that uh, it somehow is uh, symbolic of the fact that uh, the disciples were insufficiently prepared uh, for their ministry. But I actually think there's a little bit more to going on here. I think this suggests that the disciples had just seen Jesus miraculously feed 4,000, and now when it's time to move, they think, gosh, we don't need to bring along bread. If we get hungry and we encounter a crowd, well, Jesus will just feed them. Uh, and I think in some ways it's, it's, um, it's understandable in a number of different ways, but it's precisely uh, the wrong point to draw from that story about feeding the multitude. Because if you remember the, the dynamics of that story, the point was to say, look, how many bread and loaves, or excuse me, how many loaves and fish do you have, disciples? Jesus is putting the responsibility onto the disciples. He's trying to say, look, when I'm gone, it's going to be your responsibility to take care of and feed and oversee the needs of these crowds. In other words, I think the feeding of the multitude stories is really about Jesus commissioning and preparing the disciples to take responsibilities for the need of the communities that they live in and interact with. And here the disciples are, just not even bringing much bread with them at all, I think presuming, well, if we need anything, Jesus will perform a miracle and will get us out of the the problem. So, in either case, Jesus doesn't critique them for not being prepared, but he sees this as a teaching moment. And this is very often the case of uh, Mark's Jesus, that he's, an encounter happens, an instance happens, he sees something, and he uses it as, as a moment, as a teaching moment, to relay something about the nature of discipleship. And so, Jesus says to his disciples, he cautions them and says, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of the yeast of Herod. So, Jesus is picking up on this this theme of bread, but then redirects the conversation to say, watch out for the yeast of the bread and the Pharisees. You think, here's what I think Jesus is saying. You think your problem is that you forgot bread? I tell you what the real problem is. It's the yeast of the Pharisees and of, and of Herod. Now, to understand what's going on here, we just need to take a half step back and say, well, what's yeast? Uh, what does it do? Well, as many of you know from uh, from baking in, in, in many different regards, be it a cake or certain types of bread, yeast is a leavening agent. It's not something that's visible. You can't break open a loaf of bread and actually see the yeast in it. But you know that the yeast is there, invisible, enabling the bread to rise. That is, it's this invisible agent uh, that gives shape and form and height and depth to a loaf of bread. Now, it's, in Atlanta, if we wanted to translate this, we might say it's, it's the carbonation of a Coca-Cola. That is, it's the stuff that's in there that's pervasive that, that causes the, the bubbliness uh, of a soda. So that, that's the general thing that I think that the object lesson that Jesus is talking about. But what does this mean? What does this symbolize? Well, one possibility that one finds in the commentaries is that this is a type of polemical adaptation of the something that the Pharisees themselves used to say. You see, the Pharisees saw themselves in the Jewish society as a type of leavening agent. That is, they were uh, these very holy people that really made the whole batch of dough, that is, the whole community of Israel, Holy, so it's an, they're the agent, uh, and and it's through their influence that the holiness really spreads and encompasses the whole community. That that is one possibility. And in this case, Jesus would be taking something the Pharisees would use to describe themselves, and here he'd be pointing it out as a warning. But I think there's another possibility that's related but distinct. 
I think in many ways in this context, yeast is being used as a symbol of the pervasive corruption that's hidden in society. Now, this doesn't mean that there's any problem with yeast. I've heard some Christians take it in that direction, but Jesus is not saying uh, don't eat, uh, excuse me, bread with leaven in it, only eat unleavened bread. That's not at all what this is saying. This is a metaphor or an analogy. And I think what it's about is that just as yeast is invisible but pervasive in a loaf of bread, I think Jesus is warning the disciples to say, watch out for those things that are invisible and pervasive in society that causes harm to community. And on this moment, we might just pause for a second and think, what are those invisible yet pervasive elements even here in Atlanta or in your own community, wherever you're listening from, that might be compared to a yeast. That is, the thing that's kind of worked out everywhere. It causes a problem, although not that yeast causes a problem in bread, but but that in in the symbolism, the yeast is causing a problem, but it's not visible. It's always and already there, but it's not typically visible. What are those issues in your community, in our community here in Atlanta, that might be comparable to leaven or to yeast? Well, just to name a few, it might relate to issues of affordable housing, of homelessness, of the wealth gap, of the lack of health care for many individuals. Maybe it's mental disease or depression or even the issue of suicide. These are things that are out there often more often than we like to admit, but sometimes for many of us, remain invisible. And so we might read this text then as Jesus warning the disciples to say, look, there are these invisible ills and problems in society. Make sure that you see them. And I think that's what actually makes sense of the imperative that we find in verse 15. He says, watch out, beware. In English, that's the NRSV translation. In English, they sound like two different things, watch out, beware. But in the Greek, uh, it's a double imperative and both verbs mean to see. It's horate and blepete. It means perceive, see. That is, be the sort of people who have eyes to see these invisible problems in our society. Be the sort of people who not only can look at a community and understand the obvious need of their lack of bread, as was in the previous story leading right up to this, but be the sort of disciples, be the sort of ministers, be the sort of ambassadors of the gospel who have the eyes to see these invisible problems that really can infuse and and disperse throughout society, but often are not recognized. That, I think, is the message, but of course, the disciples really don't quite get it. In the very next verse, they say, uh, or or they wonder uh, why Jesus is talking about this, and he responds back to them, Jesus does, in verse 17, why are you talking about bread, or having no bread? So they misunderstand it. This is a classic case of the disciples not, in fact, having eyes to see or ears to hear the true meaning of Jesus's words. In fact, what I think they're doing is they're hearing and responding to Jesus's words literally. They're not understanding that he's speaking analogically or metaphorically here. So Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Here again, there are two seeing verbs in Greek, perceive and understand. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear. And I think this is the punchline of the story 
that is really, really crucial, and it's going to point us forward to a major theme that gets worked out in, the, in all of the texts that we're looking at in this lesson. The problem with the Pharisees in the beginning, when they demand a sign from heaven, is precisely the fact that they have eyes but fail to see. They've actually literally seen Jesus perform miracles, but they don't have the eyes to perceive and understand that, that, that those miracles reflect Jesus' authority from the one true God. Similarly, in this latter part of this text, Jesus is teaching the, the disciples to have eyes to see these invisible problems in society, but precisely they don't understand, they don't get the message. And so they, not unlike the Pharisees, have eyes but fail to see or perceive what Jesus is really saying. And so really this is an indictment or a critique of the disciples, and it's going to be a theme that we get seen, that we see worked out throughout this text. And I think the, the Jewish reader of the Gospel of, of Mark, and we must remember that Mark was originally directed to a Jewish community, a Jewish community reading the Gospel of Mark and familiar with the Old Testament they would have understood the background of these words. Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? The Jewish reader of Mark would have heard these words before. And I think what would have been called to mind for them is a passage like Psalm 135, 15 to 17. And in this little poetic text, the psalmist is, is essentially making fun of ancient Near Eastern idols, that is, ancient Near Eastern statues that were intended to represent gods. And, and here, the psalmist is making fun of them and trying to convince the reader of the psalms why worshiping idols doesn't make sense and, in fact, is very foolish. But listen to how the psalmist characterizes an idol. Psalm 135, 15 to 17. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. And there is no breath in their mouths. So notice the similarity to what Jesus has just said here in Mark 8. Eyes, but cannot see. Ears, but do not hear. So in characterizing the disciples this way, Jesus is not only comparing them to the Pharisees who also have eyes but can't really see. But really, there also might be this resonance in the background that Jesus is saying, look, disciples, in having eyes but not seeing, you really are no better than those lifeless statues, those lifeless idols that the nations used to worship as their god. So really, it's 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 a critique of their lack, not of physical sight, but their lack of perception, their lack of understanding. Now, this whole theme about vision and and having eyes but not being able to see actually gets played out uh, in in very important ways in the story that immediately follows this one. And so let's go with Mark then uh, to the very next story, which is found in 8.22 to 26. And here we'll just read the story to get a sense of what's going on. The disciples and Jesus came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? Now let me just pause here in the middle of the story uh, just to draw your attention to a few details. It might seem quite strange and maybe even a little bit gross that Jesus put saliva on the man's eyes. It's a really weird thing um, that he does this. If you recall from Mark 7.33, Jesus actually did something similar earlier. He heals a deaf man by spitting and touching his tongue with the saliva. 
And believe it or not, this idea of using spittle or spit uh, in healing stories was actually very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. So although it seems very bizarre to us that Jesus is using spit to, he- to heal, an ancient reader, a reader familiar with Greco- Greco-Roman literature and stories about healing in the ancient world, actually would have recognized this as a very common way to bring about healing. But the other thing I want to draw your attention to is, is as Jesus performs this miracle, he asks him, can you see anything? And of course, at this point, we fully expect the man to say, I can see, you know, thank you, Jesus, or whatever ex- exclamation of doxology he would have in doxology and thanksgiving, we expect it to follow. But what the man says is actually quite surprising. Verse 24, and the man looked up and said, I can see people but they look like trees walking. In other words, what's going on here? Well, I think the man uh, who has, seems to have been completely blind, he experiences some form of healing after this first touch of Jesus. He can see things, uh, but, but they're very foggy or fuzzy. The, the world has not yet come into focus for him. His vision is not yet completely healed. He sees people, but he can't make out their faces or their, their distinct features. In fact, he describes them as looking like trees moving about or walking. So it's only a partial healing story. Then in verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes a second time, and he looked intently and his sight was restored, and now he sees everything clearly. Then Jesus sends him away to his home, saying, do not even go into the village. And remember, that's that common theme of Mark, where Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, and in particular people who is healed, uh, not to make the miracle widely known. But what what catches my attention, and what I want to focus on, is this idea that the, the healing of this blind man occurs in two steps. So after the first touch, he partly sees, but everything is still a little bit hazy and foggy and fuzzy. But then it takes a second touch to bring fuller healing to this man such that he could see everything clearly. So what's going on? Well, I think it's no accident that Mark has arranged to tell this story immediately after another story about the Pharisees and the disciples having eyes but not being able to see, because that's precisely what happens to this man. In this story, as in the previous one, seeing works on two levels. First, there's a matter of physical sight. Uh, and, And Jesus, by the way, is very commonly described as healing blind people. And that's no accident. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, healing the blind was associated with a time of future deliverance of the people of Israel. So in uh, in uh, in Mark, then when Jesus heals the the, uh, the blind and enables them to see, that really is a sign that that he is the one to bring the future deliverance to Israel. That's seeing on a physical level. But in Mark, as as we have noticed in the previous story, seeing can also happen at a second level, and it's about inner perception or understanding. We might distinguish then between sight. In insight or seeing and perception. Both need to happen in order to fully be a disciple of Jesus. And so what I want to suggest is that what's happening in this healing story, where the man gets touched one time and he can see, but only in hazy terms, and then he gets touched a second time, and that brings clarity of sight. I think what Mark is saying, and I think what Jesus is embodying here, is that this is the process 
of discipleship. It takes both, uh, it takes adjustment, not only of what we physically see, but what have we understand. And I think the message is this, the disciples, in many ways, are like this man who, uh, after the first touch, can see, but everything looks foggy and fuzzy. Uh, The disciples, by their experience of Jesus and by their conversion and by their following after Jesus, they have eyes to see that this is someone special, that this is someone unique, that this is someone from God. They, They are, Jesus has opened their eyes to that. But constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples fail to really understand who this Jesus is. What does he mean? Where did he come from? Uh, Where is he headed? How is he intersecting with our lives? The disciples are continually misunderstanding this aspect of who Jesus is. In other words, what I want to suggest is that just as this man in the story in 822 to 26 was in need of a second touch to see clearly, so too are the disciples in need of a second touch so that they might see Jesus clearly. And the story immediately preceding this beautifully illustrates that. They have eyes, but they cannot perceive. Well, I think this theme of uh, sight working at two levels, of having eyes but not being able to fully perceive and understand, is exactly what is happening in the story that follows, in that story where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. I suspect that this is fairly well known for many of you, but I want to revisit it and and point out a, a dimension that I think uh, often gets overlooked. So let's turn then to Mark eight twenty seven through nine one. Just as a little geographical note, the author here tells us that the disciples and Jesus have moved from Bethsaida, where he heals the blind man, which is on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. They head directly north to Caesarea Philippi. And I've given you on the Prezi slides that I've posted along with this audio file a map of the northern part of Israel so you can see where some of these places are. You'll note that Caesarea Philippi is on the very northern border of Israel. In modern day uh, settings in geography, it's just on the border between Israel and Lebanon. And it's there that we find uh, Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in this region, uh, snow that melts off of Mount Hermon really feed the headwaters of the Jordan River. And remember, the Jordan River is that major water source in Israel that flows north to south, goes through the Sea of Galilee, out the southern end, all the way down the eastern edge of Israel, and emptying out into the Dead Sea. And so Caesarea Philippi is the setting for this story. Caesarea Philippi shouldn't be confused with Caesarea Maritima, which I also have marked in red on the map on your Prezi sides. Caesarea Maritima is on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. It's just north of Tel Aviv. Uh, it, w- it would have been the major Roman headquarters of people like Pontius Pilate and other governors who ruled Jerusalem and Judea in that southern part of, uh, of the nation. And so Caesarea Maritima would have been a large Roman city, the home of Pontius Pilate. Caesarea Philippi, which is named after another one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, was located in the far north at the edge of Mount Hermon. In either case, that's where this story uh, takes place. I'm going to have more to say about why that geography matters in just a second. In either case, on the way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And here the disciples rehearse the very common answers that were circulating at this time. They say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, and others say that you are Elijah, and other people say you're a prophet. 
And if you look back into the early part of Mark 6, when we get that story of Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist, and, and that story begins by, um, by basically people wondering about who this Jesus is, and these very same three answers are given. Is he John the Baptist? Is he... Uh, is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? So here the, the disciples are just rehearsing the word on the street or kind of the, the, the rumor mill about who this figure is. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now he wants to know what the disciples think. That's what the crowds think. That's the popular opinion that Jesus is John the Baptist raised or Elijah or a prophet. But now Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And of course, as we know, Peter jumps in and we love Peter. He's he, uh, there's that line about sinning boldly, and it seems that that fits Peter very well, because Peter jumps in and blurts out, you are the Messiah. Now, in Aramaic, remember, that's the language that, that, that Jesus and his disciples would have been speaking to one another. In Aramaic, he would have said, not Messiah, but Masiach. That's that Hebrew word that literally means to anoint or be anointed. And our word, Messiah, is just a transliteration of that ancient Hebrew word, Messiah. In the Greek, remember Mark is writing in Greek, so he's always translating from the words Jesus and disciples spoke in Aramaic into the common language of Greek. In Greek, Messiah is translated Christos. And of course, Christos is the word from which we get Christ. So when we use the word Jesus Christ, that that second term, Christ, it's not, of course, Jesus' last name. Though I have to admit, I think as a youngster, I often thought that Christ was Jesus' last name, just like my name is Ryan Bonfilio. His name was Jesus Christ. Of course, that's not the case at all. Christ is not a last name, but it's a title. It's the title Messiah. Now, what do we think about Peter's confession? Does he get it right? Does he truly answer who Jesus is? Does he truly get the identity of Jesus correct? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a partially correct answer. Peter, unlike the crowds and uh, Herod and others, Peter gets the right terminology. That is, Messiah is a far better description of Jesus than Elijah or prophet or John the Baptist. So in terms of terminology, Peter uh, gets it precisely correct. The problem is, Peter is working with a faulty understanding of what sort of Messiah Jesus was supposed to be. And we get a very clear sense of that in the immediate verses that follow. In Mark 8, 31 to 32, we hear this. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And on hearing this, Peter takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, what's going on here? Well, Peter is operating with an understanding of the Messiah that would have been very common in Jewish circles at about the time that Jesus lived. At that time, uh, the Messiah was was not a large con- uh, concept, by the way. There was not pervasive belief that a Messiah would be coming, but, that, but it was beginning to emerge, the idea of a Messiah. And where it did emerge, the theology of the Messiah was that this person would be a political and military leader. They, they would have been someone who would deliver Israel out from the control of the Roman authorities, would liberate them from 
uh, the Roman taxes that put such a burden on the people. They would restore the land uh, under the control of Israelites. They would free them from their oppressors. And finally, Israel would once again be its own independent and sovereign nation. So they had this image of the Messiah as a military royal figure who would defeat foreign rulers and restore Israel to its rightful place in the land. And I think this is what, that, what Peter has in mind when, he's, when he rebukes Jesus. He's basically saying, look, when you start talking about suffering and being condemned and dying, you're getting off message. He kind of imagines Jesus giving a, a stump p- speech, to use modern terms, and he rebukes him for going off message and saying, look, 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 don't talk about dying and suffering. That's not what a Messiah does. What a Messiah does is he comes in triumphantly and restores and rescues the people by overthrowing the powers of the Romans. You see, Peter here has the right terminology. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has the wrong understanding of the job description of the Messiah. And this is precisely why Peter has eyes to see, that is, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but his vision is still fuzzy. His vision is still like that man who can initially see, but the people around him look like trees moving. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Peter here. He has eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but he cannot yet see clearly what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so as a result, result Jesus rebukes him. And that's a very strong word in Greek, rebuke. Uh, epitemao is the Greek word. And it's the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes unclean spirits and demons, and when he rebukes the wind when that storm kicks up on the Sea of Galilee at the end of Mark 4. So Jesus really offers a strong word back to Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, what exactly does this phrase mean? Well, I think at least it could be understood in in two different levels. Uh, On the one hand, I think it might have been a real temptation for Jesus to buy into Uh, this idea that he was going to be this strong, powerful, military messiah. And maybe he understood in this sense, uh, Satan, or excuse me, uh, Peter, as a Satan-like figure, he was trying to tempt him to abandon his true mission, which would ultimately lead to the cross, and instead to embrace and capture the status and prestige and power that would come along with being precisely the type of messiah that Peter hoped he would be. That's one possibility. But I think it can also cut in another direction. In Greek, the phrase behind me can also mean after me. That is, fall in line behind me. That is, get back, uh, take the position of a disciple. Take the position of a follower. And I think this understanding, it actually makes a lot of sense when, again, you recall that all of this is happening at Caesarea Philippi. It's all happening at the very northern border of the land of Israel. And from here on out in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is headed south. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and now he's on that inevitable journey to Jerusalem to confront the religious leaders there, to ultimately be betrayed, condemned, and crucified. This is where the mission of the Messiah leads. And so if you imagine this scene unfolding in the north, you can even picture Peter literally standing in front of Jesus. Jesus is headed, is headed south, and he, Peter literally moves in front of him be, so that he's separating. Uh, Peter stands between Jerusalem and Jesus, or Jerusalem and Caesarea Philippi, and he's trying to literally uh, to stand in his, in his way of journeying south 
to this place of condemnation and crucifixion. So here, Jesus is saying, look, get behind me. Not only fall in line, but, but follow me to Jerusalem. Because the, the path of discipleship is one that, like my own mission, Jesus speaking, moves towards uh, this, this necessary sacrifice, moves towards this place of suffering, moves towards the mission that God had called me for. He's inviting Peter to get on board. It is a rebuke for sure, but I think even more so, it's a call to discipleship that says, come follow me as both of our paths move from the north down into Jerusalem. That's another way I think you can understand this message Get behind me, Satan. Okay, all of this then sets us up for the last story that we'll encounter in this lesson, and it's the story of the transfiguration. And what I want to suggest is that this story is not only linked uh, in terms of literary placement to this confession of, of that Peter's confession and, and somewhat misidentification of Jesus as Messiah, but I think, in fact, the story of the transfiguration is trying to resolve this whole issue of failed sight that we have seen as a major theme in the stories that immediately precede it. Let's recall the story, uh, and, and I'll get into explaining why that is. First, just one other geographical note. In Christian tradition, the place of the transfiguration is traditionally said to be Mount Tabor. And I've on your map, if you're following along in Prezi, Mount Tabor, uh, or the region where Mount Tabor is, is, uh, is within a little yellow circle. You can tell it's just to the east of Nazareth. And this is a traditional site, and pilgrimage, pilgrims to this day go to this region east of Nazareth to experience uh, the place where the, the transfiguration happened. However... I actually disagree. I don't think Mount Tabor is the likely place where the transfiguration happened. And there's a couple reasons for this. One, uh, in the very beginning of the transfiguration story, we get the little chronological notice. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, Remember, Jesus and his disciples immediately before this would have been in Caesarea Philippi. So the question remains, could they have journeyed from Caesarea Philippi down to Nazareth in six days? Well, possibly. They would have had to have a pretty good pace. It's not completely implausible, but that would have been a, a pretty good ground to have it covered in six days. So I don't think it makes sense that they would have gone that far in six days. And the other point that makes me suspicious that Mount Tabor is not the actual site is that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, just overshadowing Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon, literally the tallest mountain in all of Israel, was right there at the very place that the disciples and Jesus were when they begin this journey to Jerusalem. And so when in, in 9-2 we hear that, that Jesus leads them up a high mountain, the high mountain, the most logical interpretation of it, is that that must have been Mount Hermon. That would have been the high mountain, indeed the highest mountain of all of Israel. Mount Tabor is, um, is not a high mountain. It's a small mountain. It really, it's something like Stone Mountain, but not quite so high, and then it kind of just pops up out of the landscape. Um, now, again, I can't know for sure that, that it didn't happen on Mount Tabor, but I think this northern location, this northern geography uh, for this story, I think makes a lot more sense in terms of where we are geographically in the story of Mark. In either case, 
Jesus takes up his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to this mountain, whether it's Tabor or Hermon, and there he was transfigured before them. Now, this word transfigured in Greek, uh, it's just a word for metamorphosis that we know as metamorphosis. And what this is saying is that Jesus physically looks different. There's some sort of physical transformation happens that results in Jesus looking different. And at this point, we might wonder, well, why? Why is this weird note about transfiguration? Well, I think it's precisely because of the failed vision of the disciples in the preceding stories. That is, when the disciples see Jesus as he actually appeared in real life, they don't get it. They can't see clearly. So perhaps in this story, the idea here is that that Jesus needs to be physically and visually transfigured in order for the disciples really to see him clearly. That is, Jesus knows that the disciples have eyes but can't really see clearly. So maybe in changing his own appearance, he hopes to break through and enable the disciples to see who he truly is. That this is the case, I think, uh, makes sense of the very next notice that we get in the story. Verse 3 says, And Jesus' clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. So what is the symbolism here of this dazzling white? Well, I think the point here, it kind of, it goes in two different directions. On the one hand, when Jesus is transfigured and appears in this dazzling white clothing, I think the first point is that we don't see Jesus in royal garments. We don't see Jesus in military garments. That is, he doesn't have a crown with gold or purple. He doesn't have military weapons with him. That is, he doesn't look like the sort of Messiah that Peter thought he was. That is, in visual appearance, if if Peter can't get the concept of what a Messiah is, here now Jesus is very visually going to depict that Peter doesn't have it right. That is, he doesn't appear in any royal or military garb. Instead, he appears in his clothing of dazzling white. And dazzling white in the Old Testament, at least, and at at this time of early Judaism, it was a symbol of purity. So it's kind of putting Jesus in more of a prophetic or priestly image, but also this, the, this reference to dazzling, dazzling white clothes, which we also see in the book of Revelation, it's a symbolism of martyrdom. That is, martyrs were often shown in iconography in dazzling white clothes. And I think what this, pre, what this foreshadows and prefigures is the fact that not only is Jesus not a royal or military figure in royal or military garb, but rather he's in the clothing of a martyr. Because as we know, This path that Jesus is heading toward from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem is one that will ultimately lead to his death on a cross. So I think here again, Jesus is offering a very visible and visual lesson to Peter, who is not yet able to see what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Reading further as we wrap up. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And it is. Indeed, it's very good for them to be here. And he, he continues, let us make three dwellings. The Greek word here is skenes, and, and I'll tell you why that's important in just one second. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This last little note, again, I find a little bit of humor with Mark in this section of his gospel. It's as if uh, Peter was just nervous. He was terrified. And so this thing that he says, uh, you let us make three dwellings, it's almost as if it's just nervous chatter. It's kind of, he's trying to fill in uh, the silence because he's just terrified about what he's seeing. Now, 
what is Peter doing here? What does he want to do by making three dwellings? One for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Well, in many ways, I think we can we can empathize with Peter here. It was good for Peter to be alone with Jesus and James and John on the mountain. I imagine this would have been a powerful spiritual experience, one that 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 that, that nurtured Peter and James and John's souls, the one that was very rejuvenate rejuvenating and special for them. And so I think Peter's impulse here is kind of to say, how do I capture this moment? How do I contain this experience of Jesus transfigured? How do I continue to experience this in my life? And I think in his logic, he says, well, let's just build, let's buy some real estate. Let's, let's build some houses or little tents or dwellings uh, to kind of capture or contain this amazing spiritual moment that we are having with Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah. Um, maybe we would say that, that, that Peter is even trying to institutionalize this experience, this powerful spiritual experience of Jesus transfigures. He wants to, to, to literally build a house around it so that presumably he and maybe others could go and come and experience what he had experienced, that is, Jesus transfigured. I think Peter's intentions are partly understandable, but they're mostly misguided. And of course, after this, uh, Jesus disappears, and he no longer sees, uh, or I should say Moses and Elijah disappear, and, uh, and, and Jesus is kind of retakes on his normal form. And I think what Peter misunderstands here goes back to the preceding story. Peter still doesn't understand the mission of the Messiah. Or maybe Peter does understand now the mission of the Messiah. Maybe Peter really does get that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And so in, in an offering to set up these three dwellings, Jesus or Peter, excuse me, is literally trying to keep Jesus in place. By offering him real estate, he's trying to prevent him to move and relocate to Jerusalem. But in either case, Peter gets it wrong. Because we know that Jesus' mission is not to stay up there on that mountain, be it Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. Jesus' mission is not to stay up on that mountain conversing with Moses and Elijah and only appearing and being with his inner circle. Rather, Jesus' mission is one that inevitably leads him down the mountain, off the mountain, off that holy site, and into the lives of people and on that path of suffering to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, and on three days later, to be raised from the dead. And I think that this is Jesus' mission comes into clear focus in John 1, 14. So we're going to move to a different gospel. In that famous introduction of the gospel of John, we hear the words, and the word became flesh and lived among us. Now, Greek has a really good word, verb, meaning to live. And in fact, many of you know it. It's the word zao. You know the noun version of it, zoe. If you have a friend or know someone named zoe, their name in Greek means life. And so the verbal form of the name zoe is zao. And so Greek uses this all the time. The New Testament uses that word all the time to mean lived. But interestingly, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and lived among us. The word zao is not used in that context. Instead, the gospel writer John uses the word skenao. And if you're looking at uh, the Prezi slides, or if even you're hearing the language here, the verb skenao, which is translated as to live in John 1.14, is the same root as the word for dwellings, skenes, 
that we find in Mark 9, verse 5. And I think this is no accident. Peter wants to create a dwelling in order to keep Jesus on the mountain in that sacred space. But the Gospel of John is telling us, no, no, no. The Word became flesh. God became incarnate. Not to stay on a mountain, not to call people up to this holy space, but rather the Word became flesh in order to skenao, or tent, or dwell among us. Not up on the high holy mountain, but rather among all of us in the towns and villages of the Galilee, in the towns and regions and cities of Judea. God came to live. His mission, the mission of the Messiah, was to live among us and be the embodied Word of God and bringing grace and truth, not to only those who could make it up to the high mountain, to those special places of holy revelation, but rather to bring that revelation down the mountain and into our very lives. I think what this story is inviting Peter and James and John, and many centuries later, us as readers of the text today, to have the eyes to see that not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but to understand, to perceive, to have the insight into what sort of Messiah this Jesus is to be.